no one really gets it yet because this is a new frontier. And there's so much information asymmetry in the public markets. Literally everything is arbed out within like, yep. I don't know, a second. Algos. Pretty much. And like, there's like, you can see major projects in, in crypto go up like a hundred, 200%. Or like, if you got, got a read on like the change in governance, you know, it's, it's the alpha is ridiculous. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I'm joined by Tyler Neville, macro strategist at BlockWorks. Tyler and I discussed the evolving financial landscape as crypto adoption increases while fee compression drives change in the traditional financial arena. We unpack the new financial media landscape and the preference of younger generations who place more value on truth and transparency than on breadth and the mentality of doing business as it's always been done. Hope you enjoy. All right, everybody, really excited today. I've got with us Tyler Neville, uh, macro strategist at BlockWorks. Looking forward to the conversation. And Tyler, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, sure. Thanks, Kane. Um, excited to be here. So my background, I started out um, from college. I went to a firm called the KBW. It's a just financial services investment bank, boutique investment bank. This was like 2007, right before the financial crisis. And we were one of the first banks that did research on banks. So we saw all the non-performing assets kind of skyrocketing. We were one of the first banks to call basically the recession oncoming in 2008. But what I realized there was nobody knew how the financial system actually worked, including a lot of people at KBW. Like they were supposed to study banks and this has never happened before. And like the leverage was insane and no one really expected it besides like, I don't know, a really handful of really smart people there. Anyway, it unfolded. I went to a hedge fund in Miami uh, from there, which was a part of HIG Capital. And they were short financials on the way down in 2008. And I was living in these giant high rise buildings in Miami, which are now all filled, but they were like these monstrosities built with like, insane leverage of these banks like Bank United and in, in South Florida, which was like, you know, square one for where they did just superfluous lending. Anyway, long story short was I was living for like $800 a month in a fully furnished apartment. And I was one of like 16 people in a high rise apartment. And we were literally watching the financial crisis unfold and shorting all these banks around us. So that was 2008. Um, so after that, kind of bounced around, went to a hedge fund in Boston, and then went to Franklin Templeton um, in San Francisco for five years, um, and then made the switch to financial media shortly after that. So that's sort of the, the path of career. Hopefully that wasn't too long-winded. No, I think that that's great. I think the path was good. For me, the, the move from the hedge fund industry to financial media, I think that was great foresight. Uh, a lot of what's going on um, now in the crypto space hinges around that. Um, maybe you can give us just a little brief on what that process was like and, and maybe the thought process of seeing that wave 
because uh, it's been a big one in the last couple of years. Yeah, what's really interesting is like I saw the fee compression from you know hedge funds can't really charge two and twenty unless you're like a top performing hedge fund anymore. Uh, you know, mutual funds are getting annihilated. That was my time at Franklin Templeton. They were getting undercut by you know BlackRock, Vanguard, and now there's basically zero fees, zero hurdle rate to to investment now. So it's really a hard thing that's happening where this fee compression causes malinvestment because the companies like Vanguard and BlackRock basically spray capital everywhere. And that gets allocated from pension funds. And, you know, basically uh, passive is supposed to sit on top of active, but when it grows too big, all due diligence goes out the door and then active can't charge the proper fees to do the due diligence on the stock. So I saw this firsthand of like, just annihilating not only the buy side, but the sell side commissions were dropping too. So it's just like fee compression game that I saw happening. And I'm like, you know what? There's no information asymmetry. There's, you know, you can't charge fees anymore. Um, And it's just a race to zero, just like it is with interest rates from the Federal Reserve side. So I needed to get the hell out of uh, asset management is like, it just kind of turned into like a Ponzi scheme at a a certain point. Um, And so I went to financial media and worked at Real Vision, which is kind of like trying to gather the coolest, smartest, you know, financial minds uh, to talk about what was really going on because like you turn on mainstream news and it's like, oh, the stock market's at new highs, you know? And you actually got the contra of that, which is, I think I was at the center of the decentralization of media where you actually got a chance to to say things that weren't like subsidized by BlackRock on your advertising. Like you you actually could, could tell the truth and saying the truth inside the asset management industry was so hard because like all these people were still at the top of the, the spectrum, you know, I'm a millennial, the boomers are like, well, I'm still raking in a million dollars a year, just doing nothing. And like everyone who's trying to like climb up the, the ladder wasn't really getting paid against the inflation of other assets. Like their wages weren't growing. So I saw that middle-class kind of like squeezing. And so anyway, you can see the real growth rates on smaller corporations. And that's why I saw at Real Vision, you know, we were growing, but, you know, CNBC was probably dying. And, and that synopsizes a lot of what I think is happening in macro markets today, which is the bigger you are, your growth rates are falling. And the smaller you are, the more nimble and the more you can tell the truth. Because when you get this big, you have corporate interests basically driving everything. Right. And you're, the ways you monetize are all giant corporations. And, and here, the people that are really growing is the real growth in the economy are the small companies. So that was sort of what I saw jumping into financial media. Um, and it was, it's been really interesting because I think this is, might be a crazy statement, but I think journalists actually do real fundamental research better than actual analysts sometimes. Oh, without, <laughs> without a doubt. I mean, if you look at some of the funds that have had better returns. I think one uh, podcast I did with Mark Yusko, he, uh, one of the big early VC guys was a, it was an investigative journalist that was brought yeah. on board. Yeah. It's really fascinating. They ask the right questions. They, you know, they're not just going along with it. 
that's a key question. So two things you said there, te- you're able to tell the truth. And so you're, first off, you're smarter than I was. Cause I was like, Oh, well, I'll just stick out this, uh, you know, financial industry thing. Um, but you realize those, I, that path you explain hit home for me because it's the same thing. It's like, well, I can't really tell the truth because it goes against the corporate entity or policy, which is protected by, we've got to charge fees for, and look, everybody's for-profit entity. You, you work to get paid and, I get it, but I think some of what we've seen unravel here in the last four or five years and then what feels like mass exodus out of traditional finance is just the truth isn't being told. And it's kind of like, you know, you can't handle the truth. Um, And in some regards, that is true, right? We can't just have total and complete truth because it creates chaos, but we seem to have built this line of just virtue signaling or whatever you say one thing you do another behind the door closed doors and that's a big key that you picked up on there yeah one of my themes is like scale is great but scale at a certain point is bad like there it's bad for like your country's interests and and generational interests in general Mm -hmm. it's like you know larry fink you know, recently came out and he's like, oh, now's the time to really invest in China. And you have this like right. rule and like, you know, whatever you think about China, it's just like Larry Fink is the only place he can invest with the size he, you know, nine mm-hmm. trillion asset manager is to go into China. But like, the truth is, is like, you really should be incentivizing like investment changed from uh, basically investing in real new ideas that have risk, like volatility and risk really creates real growth. And that's what investment has been. But much of the last 30 years, I think, has just been a transfer of wealth through financial engineering. So I, I like to say, like, the market is two different things. One is a giant refinancing mechanism based off debt and financial engineering. And that's why we have secular stagnation, really, is, is growth rates aren't really that high because it's basically taking from Peter to pay Paul, right? And the real growth should be happening in in VC. And I I think you're seeing investors realize like we need to invest in the future. And that's why you're seeing that divergence or convergence happening, which is why, you know, digital assets are becoming bigger and bigger. Yeah. And I mean, um, some of it is lack of regulation, but I don't view that as a bad thing because the lack of the rules and the, and the boundaries to be creative create these new products. So for me, that's a thesis of why I feel it's important that it's such a big next wave is because the Googles, Amazons, Facebooks, they're not going to happen on internet 2.0 or traditional internet that brought us email. They're going to happen on crypto networks, which is web three and kind of that build out. Um, So that's a great segue into probably the reason why we even connected um, where I reached out and, and you had posted in your, I think it's weekly or daily letter, the part about Mark Andries and his thoughts on venture capital and mm-hmm. the difference between public and private and what that's done to the growth uh, and where the true growth has come, come from and how that's been removed really from the middle class. Uh, so maybe you can kind of lead into that. Uh, that was interesting to me. Yeah, I think he said it better than I, but you know, just to recap what he he talked about was basically after 2000 in the tech boom and all these companies like pets.com where the retail investor got annihilated and 
after um, Enron went down, there was basically this rush by regulators to, to make going public a lot harder. And that created this regulatory arbitrage where, you know, these public companies essentially that were at zero revenues and all this other stuff didn't go public, but that gave the venture capital guys this rare uh, advantage because they could invest in these new growth industries and the price of, you know, AWS, you know, cloud computing, it made starting a company way easier. The, the cost to, to start a new company just fell astronomically. So you could grow these things a lot faster than you historically could at the same time that regulation basically stopped big, big pockets of capital to invest at early stages. So, you know, I think that synopsized a lot of stuff is pension funds have been allocating towards you know, fixed income, public equities for years and years and years. And it creates this like that Tina effect. There is no alternative. And they never and they never really started allocating towards private equity and VC until the last like couple of years. And we're starting to realize like, oh my God, these things are a lot safer than we previously thought they were for a lot of different reasons. And now that capital is trying to sh- it's shoving its way into venture and private equity and creating kind of like outrageous valuations at too early of a scale now, because these, these big mandates from big pockets of capital are like creating crazy stuff. Like Tiger Global is now the number one venture like investor in the country. And they're just chasing deals, which screws up all the pricing for the historical like venture capital guys. Um, and, and that's all that growth is just caught in the private markets. And by the time it goes public, you know, your average retail investor is screwed because it's like, oh, you get to the IPO and then all the insiders so diluted. Back. Yeah. Yeah. So, so diluted. unless, and there's rare cases where, you know, things keep going up, you know, Facebook, um, you know, that, that had a big dip the first year, but then rallied and, and I think we'll probably see the emergence of a new um, technology like digital asset companies going public, it might have that same path. Like you brought up that point. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think there, uh, um, the big thing, well, two things, one, what I'm really excited to see, and this is just way early, but if you think about that private investing, the, the venture capital investing, the private deals, that market is old. Uh, generally it's illiquid, high growth, for accredited investors, I do think it should be open up to all if you can kind of afford to make the right decision. Um, but if you think about the way that it works, it's 100-page docs, manual signatures, wait five days, hey, we're going to have this capital call, and you've got to send this wire. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, we have this perfect tool, digital assets, tokens, coins, whatever you want to call them. Why is that whole process not wrapped in a smart contract? Easy button, go. Okay. And, you know, I think investors should be, you know, able to make their own decisions. I do think they should have advisors. They should have wealth managers. They should talk to people because people will do irrational things when it comes to investing mm-hmm. and they'll treat it like gambling. I mean, I think 2020 was no greater sign of that than anything. Um, but that process, I think, could be massively disrupted with tokens. Easy. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's not a Bitcoin versus Ethereum. It's not, 
DeFi versus you know NFTs, whatever you want to say. It's just the reality that the technology, like you mentioned, that underpins the process of most of the financial world just is antiquated and needs to be changed. So I'm excited yeah. about the growth and change of these rails. But to your point, uh, the one thing to me that I've seen, uh, the fundamental signs. Today's news where Coinbase plucks long-term Facebook talent to place them as their CMO. Like there's no bigger fundamental <laughs> sign than when people leave really good companies and go to kind of the upstarts. And that's yep. to your point of you've got the huge corporations, they get so big that they really can't grow. It's just no different than uh, in your past asset managers. Once you get so big, mm -hmm. you can't grow. I mean, BlackRock and those guys are so big, they can't buy bonds because there's no yield. So they say, hey, we'll, we're going to run big data on housing. We're going to figure out where the cheapest homes in the U.S. are, we're going to buy them up in swaths, turn them into 6% yielding bonds, and then raise rents every year by 10, 15, 20% because we can. Yeah. And, That's scary. <laughs> yeah. And you're wiping out people. Just, yeah. I mean, people need a place to live and, and people can't live in homes where the cost of living goes up 25% a year oh, and, yeah. and incomes are going down 25. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we're at this crazy political point. Like one of the things I think BlackRock would have a better chance if they didn't do stuff like the housing stuff. And instead they just were like, listen, we need to invest in a new generation. We right. need to invest for the future of America. And we're going to raise a hundred billion dollar venture fund like SoftBank. Like that would yeah. actually, even though it would cause crazy valuations, at least you're incentivizing like future growth instead of really just a wealth arbitrage like housing or, you know, taking advantage of globalization, which is really just a wealth, you know, transfer anyway. And, and I think that's a good point. SoftBank, I think, is one of the greatest most unknown companies out there. And I think guys in the venture space, guys in the kind of the underpinnings of equity markets or financial markets know SoftBank, but I don't think people realize how long, I mean, that thing is gigantic. Hotels, sports teams, yeah. tech, the greatest tech fund out there. And, and that was what struck me about the Andreessen piece that you wrote and, and the O'Shaughnessy podcast that you linked to. And his point was exactly what you just said why not invest in the next generation give them these digital tools the education the skills needed to grow the rest of the world it yeah. may not happen here in the us it may not happen in china it may not happen in russia like but the world needs true growth not manipulated growth because growth if you look at productivity is is tracked interest rates yeah from 1981 it went from 19 or 1980 19% to zero and now yeah. negative. And so it's time to kind of rebuild that. And, and I'm with you. I think these internet projects, let's call them cryptocurrencies, because they're really just internet projects. We're figuring out what's going to be that next wave. And, and back to that point, you know, if you look at Coinbase just purely at price and you overlay it with Facebook, the first four to six months are very, 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 very similar. Yeah. I, I'm a technical analyst. I love charts. Give me price. Don't give me anything else. But you do have to marry that with fundamentals. So you've got this price story from IPO to today that they 
if I showed you both of them, you probably couldn't pick which was which. And then you've got this fundamental story, uh, the account growth, the user growth, the transaction volume, the revenues. And then, oh, by the way, we're bringing one of the biggest and best companies in the world's chief marketing officer over to our company. Um, yeah. That, and that's move before thing. you get to crack and Gemini, Avanti, all the others. Yeah. The one thing I'm concerned about in the short term with uh, Coinbase is just fee compression. Yep. And like that innovation cycle is happening so much faster uh, with digital assets because yep. it's the amount of pure amount of capital coming into these projects and allowing, you know, hiring more people and stuff, but they do have high fees and yep. maybe that lasts until they, they figure out the lending, you know, the whole lending thing in, in Bitcoin, you know, in DeFi is mm-hmm. really, I think when you see it for the first time and use it, you're like, oh my God, this is really transformational because, you know. Without I, question. Yeah. Like I, I just bought a new house and it, it, hopefully I didn't top ticket, but doing the mortgage process through Wells Fargo is like the most antiquated, ridiculous process I've ever seen. And they, not only that, but they don't even understand it. Like they don't understand the people pricing the rates and buying points. They can't explain it. Whereas like on my BlockFi account, I always say this, you can borrow against your Ethereum in less than like 24 hours you just click a couple buttons, do a DocuSign, and you get like leverage off of your, yep. you know, uh, your holdings, which is just like so simple. Over collateralized lending, and is just it makes so much more intuitive sense to me, mm-hmm. and the process is seamless. So well, let's talk about th- that just for one second. What's the yeah. fastest, easiest way to buy a house through a token? Yeah. What's the fastest, easiest way to create? a company, uh, you know, a DAO that buys properties like BlackRock and has multiple owners and lots of legal documents through a smart contract. I, I mean, like, okay, well, okay, so, so this DAO or D app or whatever you want to call it um, sits here. It's this token and we have 50 owners. Mm-hmm. It's easily divisible. You know, you can't, the way we think about it or the way the market thinks about it today, you can't do all that without, a lot of legal fees, months and months of paperwork, redlining, mm-hmm. you know, getting everybody on board. And then one guy gets once out, but the rest of the owners don't want to buy it. You know, so you've got this and you could just sell that into the market. I mean, there's a whole like ecosystem that hasn't, well, that maybe that's the point that the current system is just a siloed system. Yeah. And the and digital system becomes an ecosystem. The, the, the capital is kind of politically trapped until I think you're seeing it. Like Dan Tapiero talks about this all the time. I don't know if you know him. He's runs the pro- biggest, actually the only growth equity firm in digital assets. And he's like, this is just a giant wealth transfer from a system that's basically too saturated in debt and programmed to devalue. And you're seeing it 250 trillion in reserve assets basically make its way. And now you have 3 trillion in crypto assets and that's including companies. That's not just private. Yeah. And so it's really happening in real time, but no one wants to actually call it what it is. Mm -hmm. 
because they're the corporate incentives essentially. And I think guys that do like you, you and I are like, this just makes, it's like so in your face in front of you and saying it out loud. You're like, yeah, that's just going to be the future, but they're still caught in it. It's just well, it's a funny. And just to use a term that gets floated around um, a little too loosely, loosely these days, but it's like conspiracy, Yeah, but it's, but it's so obvious that you're like, Am I the only guy in the room seeing this? Yeah. It's even more obvious than the internet to me. I like, without, said, yeah. Like it, owning something through a token is more efficient and like annihilates a lot of red tape. And you know, you didn't really see that with the internet. You were like, I kind of get what this is, mm-hmm. but you don't know how it's gonna evolve. Here, there's like real practical stuff happening where it's just like, wow. So so, so I think today's um crypto developers i don't even really know what they're called but let's just call them crypto developers yeah Yeah, whether they're on you know using solidity on ethereum or they're developing on uh bitcoin network or lightning or whatever i think they probably look like uh web page developers in 1997 yeah yeah so if you look at that track you know everybody thought they were just nerds just putting text on a screen and they got excited because they made an image kind of move a little bit and wiggle. Uh, but then fast forward to 2008 ish when web 2.0 really kicked in mm-hmm. and all of a sudden high demand, we need these guys, they're rock stars. And I feel like the devs of the crypto arena are kind of similar to that. Oh yeah. Except they're all like getting wealthy now. Like there's a way they're monetizing. Like, I mean, there's some insane wealth in crypto and it's getting funneled right back in the ecosystem because the returns are so good and they're already probably wealthy as it is. And and that's some of the, to me, the macro factors. uh, I'm not a big, I mean, I love macro, but I'm not, I'm not like a strategist or anything like that. Um, But I I bounce from macro into micro and all around. Um, That's one of the things that, that you're kind of seeing is it's they've seen this before and because this generation grew up with the internet you and i i mean half our life was and half our life wasn't mm-hmm. so for our generation below it was a little bit harder to see but these guys are like yeah we know how this works you oh know, yeah hold my beer watch this um kind of mentality um you brought up an interesting point on the number of like millennials that own crypto yeah yep what was that stat so it was it was a good study it was cnbc which i usually don't like mainstream media stuff i'll look at headlines anyway so that stat was it it showed it it said there was a chart with investors who had experience before 2020 Mm -hmm. or 2019 and investors that basically started in 2020 so younger gen um it was 26 percent held crypto the, the ones that started kind of 2019, 2020 to now yeah. and the ones pre. So it's the boomer verse millennials, Gen Z, all that kind of stuff. 26% is a lot yeah. and for, for something that's so scary and new. And to your point, it's huge when you consider the preference mm-hmm. because that 26%, at some point they'll get annihilated and they'll kind of learn that you can't just buy an NFT and then go to the moon and there'd be no repercussions. Yeah. But 
it, over the next 10 years, that 20 becomes 40 and then it looks like equities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I got to think it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. The only caveat to that is if somehow the Fed reverses course, takes the pain of a credit crisis and, you know, can, can stare in the face of baby boomers, unfunded pensions and says, you know, sorry, we're cutting your pension. You know, I just don't, I don't see that playing out. Like we were 12 years into this and every single time there's a little bit of pain, it gets printed over. So my only, I a hundred percent agree with you. The only way I see that happening is if a Gen Xer or a millennial comes into position of power and says, Hey guys, we just have to do this. Yeah. Because a boomer is not a boomer or, you know, 85 year old that's still making legal decisions for some reason is not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that wealth transfer happens overnight. And that's what we saw in the depression. That's what we, you know, saw undone in 1970s. Um, and that generation, because they're at the end, they're like, I don't want to take any pain. You know, these last two decades have been tough. Um, I just don't want to think about it. But the system needs a repairing to something that has sound foundations underneath it mm-hmm. from a monetary perspective. Yeah, we're, we're lucky, I think, that digital assets actually exist mm-hmm. because it, it it is providing some sort of lever um, for a fiat currency system that's programmed to essentially keep devaluing at an exponential rate. Like mm-hmm. that, that's the funny big macro thing. I used to bring this up in the asset management industry where I was just like, if fiats just devalue against each other and you know exchange rates kind of say the same, all you're doing is really annihilating the middle class. And the capital crisis right. is getting wealthy, like across countries, you know. And mm-hmm. while there might seem, oh, the dollar's not going down, but like if you look at the dollar versus Bitcoin, it's down ninety nine percent. Like, look at it versus your house, versus land, versus your car, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so that's really uh, all the things that is the American dream um, is owning a house. Those things are exponentially more expensive now because of this like basically i call it a fiat fiesta Mm -hmm. and if you look at the history of money and how it changes and the different times where it changed and maybe we're in one of those times i i would you know the probability is high in my opinion Mm -hmm. um we could go on this macro doom and gloom picture uh because it's there yeah if if we go back to tell the truth Mm -hmm. you know that we talked about earlier that's kind of the truth of what the data says, what the historical patterns say. That's the Ray Dalio. He's been more right than anybody alive, in my opinion, that that's openly sharing their information. Yeah. Um, but if on the flip side, if I just don't want to be negative because it's not good for our brains and, and people generally are positive and the world generally is up and to the right mm-hmm. with some bumps along the way. Um, to me, the crypto networks, and that's kind of why I love what you write, is that that positivity in an in within the negativity. Yeah. And and just as full disclosure, I was like super bearish for like, I'd say from 20, 
12 to like 2018 thinking like you know at at 2018 when the market fell like was it 25 percent on christmas eve and the fed literally reversed course and just you know it was game on from there that's when i was like okay the problems are way too big and that's when I, i bought my you know my house in shortly after that and was like, this is just, now it's Ponzi finance, in, in my opinion. Like he, they couldn't even raise, they shrunk the balance sheet a tiny bit, could, tried to raise a little bit and like the market imploded. And that mm-hmm. was like, the, the fast reverse course there was really shocking to me. Cause I was like, okay, they're gonna let a free market happen. Like they're actually gonna raise rates and let prices reset so the next generation could buy in. Mm-hmm. We just didn't do it. And now the problem's exponentially worse. So, it's a can kick. Uh, and yeah. to to share in your bearishness, I mean, honestly, part I, I was so bearish. I left the industry for a couple of years just to yeah. kind of like, you know, declutter, get the noise out. And I mean, that was, it wasn't 100% the reason, but it was a 65%. Um, yeah. And getting away from it. And, you know, unsubscribing from five different newspapers, getting rid of Bloomberg headlines, getting rid of, you know, just looking at tickers for a good 18 months kind of allowed me to better see, you know, this stuff and, and the rise of this, which is sort of like your move from the industry to media. Yeah, I think that's so healthy and and you don't get institutionalized personally. Yes. I I would try to ask questions in the asset management industry that were kind of, uh, was like iconoclastic Mm -hmm. and people thought I was legitimately crazy. Like I, I, here's a great story for you. So, so they did a town hall meeting. This is at, you know, the giant trillion dollar asset manager. I sat with the, the CEO who's the CEO now. And I raised my hand, this is like 2015. And I was like, why don't we do anything new? Like we need to start investing like new growth because like most of our products are just, they've been around for 30 years. Like this guy who's 55 was running a fund at 30 years old and I'm 30 and essentially like I'm getting no upside to this. So mm-hmm. like I, I said, I was like, I'll take a $50,000 pay cut if you let me be the digital, digital currency analyst. Like I'll be the crypto guy here. And everyone around this giant oak table laughed in my face, like literally like, oh, ho, 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 these hearty, like deep, you know, asset management. And your superior was like, hey, don't ever speak up again after the meeting. He was actually not bad. Like he was kind of like, you know, that's crazy, but like, you know, they're not going to go for that. And, and it was clearly like, hey, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do those things. That's too risky. And I'm like, what is investing? You know, yeah. is it about risk? Every choice has a risk assignment to it. And that's why I think the supply of new ideas is another one of my themes is like, there's too much capital, not enough ideas. And that's just synopsize it is like, they only want like, you know, they want to hit high percentage shots. And when you do that over decades, all you really do is like, you make the incentive to, to be an entrepreneur. The supply of those things are so small and the capital funding it is so small that that's where the, all the opportunity upside is. Everyone else is playing in the same exact pool as you. And it seems so like 
intuitive from a buy low, sell high, mm-hmm. like go, go to where the supply is like the least. Mm-hmm. But like when you get to that big of a stage, it's playing not to lose. And that's synopsizes, I think pretty much, you know, 70% of the market is these massive organizations that, you know, they can raise debt at low levels and buy back their stock. And it's just a financial arbitrage instead of like investing in the future. And that's, if you look at, that's what the internet did to every, every industry that played not to lose the internet wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah. And, and banking and money sits in that crosshairs right now. I'd shared your, there's too much capital, not enough ideas, but it was really pessimism around everybody freely throwing away around the term, you know, millennials, uh, they're just a pain to deal with. And I was like, it's not a generation. It's a mindset. You can be a 65 year old millennial. It just means when you go in and you say, well, I'm not going to do this all on paper and then manually type it into the computer and then scan it and do it, you know, and then snail mail it to the business. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start at the computer and get it done in 30 minutes, not four hours. And so I think to my thesis kind of along the way was, I uh, love your, your thoughts here. 2007 and eight wasn't so much a financial crisis as it was a crisis of the 30 year olds fighting with the 55 year olds. Mm-hmm. The 55 yeah. year olds are like, son, this is the way we're going to do it. Cause we've always done it that way. And here's the predictable margins. And we know that I can get into this country club and my kids can go to this private school and I can retire with this pension if we just keep doing it that way. And for him that worked cause he has maybe 10 years left. Yeah. But for the 30 year olds, it doesn't work because we're like, okay, so I'm going to finish my work in 35 minutes because I'm going to use the computer rather than the yellow notepad. And then I'm going to sit here and pretend to work the rest of the seven hours of the day. Just doesn't yeah. make sense. And so you had this headbutting between two generations about how corporations should be run. And then finally, 2012, 2013, the 55 year olds now 60. 61, 58, and they're like, uh, you know, I've had enough, I'm going. Or you just got kind of ageism at the corporate levels, like, uh, you're too old, we can pay this guy 50000 less, mm-hmm. and, and we can actually listen to him because this digital asset thing's kind of working. What's funny about that is you're seeing some of that, but then the average age of a CEO is like rising. It's like 60-some, you know? Well, I think that fits Dalio. He's like, hey, when I'm 60 to 70, I need to share my knowledge. So that's the opportunity forward. Take the guy that's 55 to 65. He's been in the trenches for 30 years. Give Tyler all of his knowledge because we'll compress Tyler's rise yeah. by 10 years and let Tyler do take all that knowledge and put it in a digital form. And then that gr- that gets growth back. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, there, there's a great quote. It's like men, uh, a society grows old when men plant trees whose shade they'll never sit under. that's good and like i just don't i think that we're not to knock boomers but like on the whole they don't want to give up power and that's really what this is all about and what's really going to happen unfortunately is you know we're going to take the boomer playbook now and we're going to print the out of this economy excuse my french (laughs) they're they're gonna get here's a great tidbit from you know the Bretton woods conference to get into it but like that was one thing i did want to talk about you guys put that on last week or two weeks ago so i want to hear about that 
Yeah. So there was one comment that was made and it was just like this, this guy was saying, I have a friend who he's worth hundred million dollars. Right. And he runs a mortgage backed security company and he's, he's gained 7% per year for the past 10 years. Yet he actually feels poor because he's not keeping up with the inflation of, uh, of other stuff. Like the, you know, tech is taking off, the people in private companies are making a lot of money. The whole like industry about yield plays is dying. And that really has synopsized a lot of boomer investment mentality, right? So if we really take that to infinity and keep printing, like we printed, we have a 18, 11 trillion in fiscal and an $8 trillion balance sheet in under, you know, a year. <laughs> we can really take that ad infinitum as a generation of millennials and boomers are going to get killed because they don't have wage, you know, they're not going to have the wage increases like we do. And they're probably in the mode of like being conservative and selling assets. So they're going to get hurt by like the inflation of commodities and food inflation and their, their purchasing power is going to go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the only way you understand that, and this is, sort of something that drives me a little bit nuts is the only way you understand that is spending the time to do the research. You mm. can't get it from a 280 character tweet. You can't get it in a three minute video or a 40 second snippet. And unfortunately I kind of feel like that's where we are today. And I, I think that's the beauty behind Bitcoin. Yeah. It in, in digital assets, they seem so complex and they are complex. Nobody understands them fully every day. You learn something new, but the reason they hid for a decade and, and in plain sight is because it took time. Yeah. It took time to research, took time to understand, took time to say, wait, all this stuff that I learned in economics is totally untrue past. So when, you know, when demand is high and supply is tight, you know, that creates price increase and the other way around when supply is high and demand is low prices fall. That's mm -hmm. the only truth to modern, to the economic theory that you and I learned in school. Yeah, but they they conveniently ignore just the the input of the U.S. dollar and dilution of that. Yeah, it, we've got price inflation that is now no longer transitory, so we're going to take commodities out. <laughs> just changing. Yeah, it's not inflation, but we're not considering food and gas, which is a staple that you use every single day. Yeah, and and because it would make inflation much more apparent. Yeah, that and the. Uh, owner's equivalent rent and yeah, yeah right that's, and that's so right. when in a world that operates off data you need a new money that that facilitates transmission of information yeah and it's not co cotton dollars or a credit card network i mean it's it's really fascinating what what's happening before our eyes and like uh, one of the signs for me was when and not me i think you might even have your cfa but uh I, when I saw, no, I, I set for it, never passed. Really? <laughs> so one of the, one of the things like I, I laughed about was like people throw away like three years of their lives doing CFA and like, it, it's probably a, a good test. Like, it's definitely like, uh, can you work really hard? Are you really smart? And like, mm -hmm. that's great. Like, but in terms of practicality, like there's negative interest rates. I mean, <laughs> 
all that stuff just goes out the window when you have negative interest rates. This is a political, like these are political problems, geopolitical problems and not, you know, like if it was a free market, hell yeah, CFA is great. But like, mm-hmm. we are not in a free market. Like that's, to, to act like it is, is just crazy to me. That was the bit, the biggest hurdle for me with the CFA is a lot of information. I learned a ton just studying for level one twice, but was not interested in it because it was more or less just a title. Yeah. And, and I worked with a CFA, um, got to know another one. I mean, at the time there were only 90,000 in the world at the time that I took it. I don't know what the number is now, but what struck me about CFAs, extremely intelligent people, but they could tell you how to calculate return on equity multiple different ways and they can break down each function, but they generally missed the signal, you know, the, the like, okay, cool. I know how it works, but here's how it applies in the real world. Mm -hmm. It's the version, it's the financial version of like going to a good university. Yes. And to me, I'm like, that's great. And like, if you want to follow that path and you like taking orders and stuff, that's, you know, go for it. But like, for me personally, I was like any creative thought and outside of the box thinking. It was zero. World, you're, you're, you're just, you're playing the Ponzi scheme and you're waiting mm-hmm. for someone to die to get a promotion. And, you know, maybe you squeeze out a little basis points of alpha here and there, but like, Meanwhile, the information asymmetry in digital assets is like astronomical. Like if you can learn something that nobody else knows, back to your point of supply and demand, like that's that's a skill set that people will need, right? Mm-hmm. And I just don't get, it's like such a herd mentality thing. Yeah. And you see that final blow off top. Like here's, when I came out of college in 2007, it was when the investment banks were hiring like, 40, 50 kids per class, like hundreds of kids would be in these investment banking, like kind of like courses before they started working there. And that was such a signal to me that I was probably one of the lemmings that got out of college and jumped into finance. It's like when you see that big boom of anywhere, and then like, I think 2015 or 2016, you had the big, maybe it was 2017, CFA applications took off yep. it was like off top and now it's like it doesn't even matter because passive owns the entire market at this right point. and like valuation goes out the door um what one so so one of the interesting interviews i did recently is this guy rain steinberg from arca and he started wisdom tree which is like one of the 75 billion dollar passive asset management and he said to me he's like we actually did this thought process it was like what happens if passive becomes the market? And he goes, that scared the crap out of us at, at Wisdom Tree. So we wanted to differentiate and do active ETFs. But like, mm-hmm. if you just have one passive thing, that basically you're in a communist society because it, <laughs> there's no differentiation between things on a human level. And he basically was like, what's so fascinating about digital assets, and that's what ARCA does now, is you you have to be an active manager there. You can't be a passive manager. Mm-hmm. So he went from starting one of the fastest growing passive, passive. back to active. And, and it was such a light bulb moment for me where I'm like, 
this guy gets it. It's about once the fees drop yep. and here's the fees are rising and you actually get paid to be a human and allocate capital. And that therein lies the, the, the future, I think. And to your point, I had seen those guys and, and talked briefly with, with somebody over there, but what he's picked up on is trends picked up the passive trend and he's like, okay, games basically flattish yep. demand is over in crypto. I totally agree. My thought is, okay, so the system broke uh, the ability for savers to have a savings rate. There's mm -hmm. no way to save. Okay. So if that's the case and you still have incomes not rising, or maybe they're rising a little bit here, but they're not, you know, you've got that wealth gap that Dalio points out. All right, so I'm not going to make enough. I have no way for my assets that I do have to increase each year. So there's got to be a change. So to me, people are seeking a savings rate. So passive investing, I just put my money in, give it a year, give it two years. It's going to go up five, six, seven percent a year. Mm -hmm. That's the new savings rate. So those people that were interested in picking stocks, bonds, whatever commodities in a macro view, where do they have to go? Because they, the, their skill is no longer demanded in that market. There's your crypto. Yeah. So now they can go take risk, be an entrepreneur, which is basically most of the things you just said, yeah. take calculated risk to figure out, well, what's the good coin and what's not the good coin? What's the great project? What's not the great project? And so that cycle of what we, you know, if traditional banking where you've got um, you know, capital markets, commercial banking, uh, lending, prime brokerage, hedge funds, mutual funds, ETFs, all that just needs to get built over here. And that really started in 2018 with the infrastructure. And then 2020, 2021, you're starting to see that. Yep. That's the, you know, if, if I say what makes me excited about two years from now, that. Yeah. What, what's even scarier to me is, well, I think that's where it's going. I, the transition is going to be really funky. Because be it'll be muddy. I don't know at this point. It's harder for JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs to build a real crypto presence. Like you, that skill set is really unique. And they're already at these fast growing companies where their equity is probably like 20 X. So, so <laughs> it creates this problem for the legacy financial world is like, you're actually too late to buy some of these companies. And I don't know how that, like, are we going to watch? I think we have reverse mergers. You see Coinbase, Kraken, Gemini, Avanti, all those guys buy the components of JP Morgan that are worthwhile yeah, and torch everything else. Like that's a crazy thought. It, like, <laughs> call, I mean, call me crazy, but that's what I think we'll see in 10 years. If, cause to your point, we, and this is the point of the podcast, take tradition, what we know from traditional finance and see the path of crypto because there's a big gap. And mm -hmm. so right now it's just a standoff fighting. But one way or another, we know that tech companies gobble up others. Yep. And once Dropbox creates the copycats, box.com, get created three months later. Where in 1980, if you built Dropbox, you wouldn't have had a competitor until, until 2001. Now it's like, okay, we've got six months, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
And and that's what happens when capital gets commoditized is things move so much faster in, mm -hmm. in the banking system. You, you would think, you know, if you, your main business model was to essentially put people in debt and you saw the yield curve flatten and like every time the yield curve steepens, there's a credit crisis. You're like, okay, maybe we should like think about what the future is. And, and the problem is they're still making so much money off leverage. I think um, they still haven't put it together that like, if the price of money really goes to zero, there's mm -hmm. two. If we have a credit crisis, they have non-performing assets blow out, you know, mm -hmm. the Great depression again, or, you know, they're, business just gets completely annihilated slowly over the next 10 years. And, and maybe we can do this again. Cause another one of your points is China's running, um, the kind of AI uh, dictatorial version of technology and U S being open to decentralized technology, maybe is running a different ver where they're still going to peer in. I mean, look, the best way to figure out where people are spending their money is look at their, you know, digital wallet, mm -hmm. uh, look at the wallet address, follow where the coins go. I can't do that with dollars. Um, yeah. and, and so we've got this, you know, interesting battle there, but, um, I think that is still to play out, um, in a big way that, that will shock most and it would be bumpy. It would just be hard. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. we're definitely like bordering on some sort of cold war again, you know, some people say the coal will never, never really ended with China, but I, I think it's picking up and you're seeing Xi making a big play on Chinese tech, kind of annihilating that whole industry, getting the Bitcoin miners out of there. And, and that's really like, you know, that opens up the next big wave of investment, I think, into digital assets because China was the big overhang, right? You have this democratic mm -hmm. ruler you know, with all the mining there and now that's kind of gone. So I don't know, it really is holding up to true form of decentralization. Like it, this Bitcoin thing will move to the, the highest jurisdiction that will allow it, you know, no matter where it goes, if it gets regulated here, you're going to have a sell-off and it's going to pop up somewhere else. And like, if it was going to die, it was going to die with China basically banning it. So and we'll wrap it up here. That's one of the points too, just for maybe later. Crypto networks are just a fourth or fifth iteration of the internet. Yeah. And so the great thing in 1980 with the internet was it broke that barrier to information. And it was a floodgate because knowledge and skill left corporate America to the individual. You had these entrepreneurs and then it takes 30 years to kind of get where we are. And these crypto networks are breaking the barrier to money and the travel at the same time as the travel of, of information. The historical yeah. analog is like the printing press did that to the Catholic church. It, right? And once the internet breaks a barrier, the floodgates open after, you know, kind of the 2000 crashes of, but the guys that are still there building for the next four or five years really set that next wave. Yep. Yep. So. Well, uh, Tyler, uh, thanks for joining today. It was awesome. Uh, we could yeah. go on forever. Um, where can listeners find you? Uh, are there any blogs or books or sources of information you like to follow? And, and maybe you can kind of leave them with a few nuggets. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm pretty, pretty reachable. Um, and then, you know, Blockworks is great. Real Vision's great. Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast I listen to pretty religiously. Um, there's so much great. And I think this is the big theme is real experts are not found at giant institutions. Those are generally like great marketing people. Absolutely. Tell a great story. And I think the, the information asymmetry found on stuff like, you know, your podcast or on podcasts in general is just incredible. You get people that like, normally there's now there's no barrier to entry when you had like for scale and you have these people that are really fascinating. They're the real experts that have a real voice now. So that's why I just love this whole emergence of, of podcasting. I think that's, it's kind of here to stay and mainstream is just going to get killed. It's, it really is hard because you're, you become pandering to kind of like that marginal watcher as a giant network. And here it's like, you have growth rates that are pretty sustainable and, you know, you can have really interesting thought and always have somebody new who's really doing the work come on. So I don't know. Highly that's, that's great. Really great information. Follow the boots on the ground online. And that's just, you'd be surprised. Like some of these Twitter accounts with like 10 followers, it's like a guy who, you know, is like a physicist and they have so much to say, but just don't, externally do it. And you can find those types of people on the internet now. It's, it's crazy, but they'll never do mainstream media because they don't have a big enough reach. Yep. So, I, th I think that's a great point. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on today. This was awesome. Yeah, man. Thanks so much. Uh, appreciate it. Be back uh, anytime you need me. Uh, awesome. Let's do it next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kate. Take care. All right. Man.